God, we ask that you would speak to us through your word. We ask that uh, you would speak through your word in all the churches across Boston that are gathering right now, that Jesus would be lifted up across the city, that you would bless those churches turning to your word, seeking to lift up Jesus Christ. We pray for the kids upstairs as they're uh, dancing and singing and, and hearing stories of uh, Ezra and Nehemiah. And we pray that, that you would teach them, that they would have fun, that they would learn uh, rich truths of who you are that would uh, bear incredible fruit as they grow in age and wisdom. We pray you would do the same for us through this text today, that you would give us a clearer picture of who you are and that we would be changed by encountering you in your holiness and in your mercy. And that as we encounter you in your holiness and your mercy, that we would see the, the pinnacle of those realities in Jesus Christ. So Holy Spirit, come and open our eyes, make us humble and contrite, trembling under your word, not seeking to master it, but to be mastered by it. God, would you do that for us in this time? We pray in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. Amen. Important question for your life is this. What do you think of when you think of God? What do you think of when you think of God? It's a really massive and critical question for your life because the answer to that question speaks not into how you view God only, but also how you view yourself. What do you think of when you think of God? I recently saw something online. It was uh, a bunch of uh, kids, like age five to like 10, just drawing pictures and sharing ideas of what they thought of when they thought of God. And, and one, uh, one of the pictures was of a, of, a, uh, of a person with these gigantic ears. So it's like a face like this, but ears that are like this. And, uh, and the explanation that the, the child wrote was that God has giant ears so he can hear what we're saying. This idea that, that God, was, I don't know what God is like, but I know he's big ears so he can hear what we're saying. Other, uh, other pictures were... Um, of somebody at kind of this, this dashboard kind of surveillance center, just like watching what everyone's doing. It said, God has the greatest cloud technology storage set up. see everything and knows everything. And it was just this playful, uh, silly way of just people, our, our thoughts of what do we think of when we think of God? And we're in the series uh, Exodus. We're, we're looking at this really, really critical book um, in the Old Testament that, that lays out so clearly this picture of who God is, and what it looks like for God to deliver his people. And, and Exodus gives us a great picture of who God is. It shows off his attributes, it shows off his character, and it also shows off his deliverance, which helps us to get a really deeper and richer understanding of Jesus. So much so that one commentator says, if you want to understand the central message of the New Testament, there's no better book to, to understand in the Old Testament than Exodus. It will give us a really rich understanding of who Jesus is. And that's where Exodus will take us, to, to set the stage and to help us be thinking about who is God, which is part of what we're going to see in this text. I want to just paint the picture of where we've been in Exodus, and then we'll jump into the passage. God's people are enslaved in Egypt. Uh, in Exodus. They've been there uh, for decades upon decades, centuries. They've been there for a long time under this burden of oppression and slavery from Pharaoh who says, I want you to serve and bow down and work for me. And God's people are saying, God, where are you? 
God, where are you? God, where are you? Because God had made a promise back in Genesis that, that he would establish a people, and through that people, he would bring a blessing to the nations, and they would dwell in God's uh, land, with God's presence, and that whole plan seems to be halted, and it seems to be derailed because they're not with God. They're not in God's place. They're not under God's rule. They're under the rule of Pharaoh. They're under the burden of slavery. They're under the burden of oppression, and they don't even really know their God. They're not even worshiping their God. They're just burdened and oppressed. But God is working and raising up a deliverer to bring deliverance for his people. God is going to act after decades of silence. God is going to move in a on-the-stage, up-front, central type of way. And that's what we see in this text, and he's going to do it through the person of Moses. And this text is going to help us get a picture of who God is and who we are in light of that truth. So let's look at Exodus 2:23 through 3:22. All right, you can uh, look up slightly, or you can open your Bible or click on your phone. 2:23. So we set the backdrop, and here's what is happening. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery, and they cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. That's our call back to Genesis. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire and out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he, God said, do not come near, take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. Come, and I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He, God said, but I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. 
Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob has appeared to me saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. And I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of the Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice. And you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. And now please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And you shall put them on your sons and on your daughters. So you shall plunder the Egyptians. God is revealing his character and he's acting to bring deliverance for his people. These are the, uh, the, the patterns of the book of Exodus starts with deliverance. God is delivering his people. And I want us to look at this text that has so many different things in it. I want us to really look at it under these two big questions. Who is God? Who are we? And what is God's plan or purpose of deliverance? Who is God? Who are we? And what is God's plan or purpose of deliverance? The first thing we see about God in this text, just as that child said that drew this picture with this small face with giant ears, the first thing we see in this text is that God hears. God hears. God is a gracious covenant maker. That's the first thing that we see in this passage. If you look at 2.23, we see it right here. In those days, uh, the king of Egypt died. Israel is still groaning under the burden of slavery. And we find out that God has been hearing their groaning. We, we know from the first two chapters, God has already been acting and moving in a behind the scenes type of way. But God is now hearing. God is remembering the text says. God is about to act in a way that's no longer behind the, st- the stage, but the director who's been behind the curtain is about to come center stage and, and put in some work and, and do something and deliver his people and act and flex his might and show up and do something profound. That's what's happening here. But before we start to see how God is going to show up, we're reminded of something about who God is, that God is a gracious covenant maker. So before we even see how God is going to act for deliverance, we're reminded that, wait a second, God has already been good before he even shows up and sets his people free. He's a gracious covenant maker. And where, where do we see this? God heard their groaning, 24, and remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Who? Right? Who? Well, this is calling us back to the fact that God first made contact with humanity when humanity was running from him, and he established a covenant, a relationship guaranteed by his word with stipulations and benefits. He established a relationship with the people who were already running from him that did not deserve the benefits of that relationship. So we're reminded, even as we see the trouble that God's people are in, oh, I forgot, God is a gracious covenant maker. The reason Israel can even groan out to God is because God had reached out to Abraham before this when Abraham didn't know God, was worshiping other gods and said, I'm going to bless you. God is a gracious covenant maker. 
We see this with Abraham, but we see this even before that when humanity turns from God in the garden, and instead of giving judgment, God gives a promise of blessing. He says, instead of saying, you're going to die and I'm going to judge you, he says, well, I'm actually going to raise up someone who's going to defeat evil in the world that you, that you have unleashed in your hearts through sin. I'm going to raise someone up who's going to bring blessing even though you deserve judgment. And this is traced then to Abraham. This is traced then to Isaac. This is traced then to Jacob. So we're reminded of who God is. He's a gracious covenant maker. He makes a covenant of blessing with people who deserve swift judgment. Now, I want you to think about this. How difficult is it for you to patch up a relationship or give forgiveness when you have been wronged? You know how hard that is for you. You know how hard it is when someone even comes properly. Say, I really, I really hurt you. I really shouldn't have slandered you at work. I really shouldn't have done that. I really... You know how hard it is when someone comes humbly to ask for forgiveness from you to still give it. Now imagine you have a people that is not asking for forgiveness, not seeking to restore, but instead running further, rebelling further, rejecting further, and yet God makes first contact. You're running from me? Guess what? I'm going to bless you. You rebelled from me? Guess what? I'm going to establish a covenant with you. You don't know me? Guess what? I'm going to come make you the father of nations so that a blessing will go out to the world. That is the character of God. He is a gracious covenant maker. But not only is he that, he is a gracious covenant keeper. Look at what we see here. God does what? He remembers his covenant. He remembers. Now, you have to understand, that sounds weird to us, like God forgot, right? We have to understand, God is so much bigger than us, we have to speak about him in language that we can understand. And so the text has to tell us God remembered, which doesn't mean that God forgot. It just means we're too stupid and too finite to understand what is it like for an infinite God to bring something to attention and get ready to act. We just don't have categories for it. So the best that we've got is, well, he remembered. It's kind of like when a child asks you to define a word and you're like, wow, I actually don't really, I know what that means, but I don't really know how to say it. So you just make some analogy that works, right? It's like when my son asks me, why is the sky blue? Do you want a cracker, right? I don't, I, don't know, I don't know what to do with that. So I have to give him the best that I can give him, right? right? And so when we get this language, we get these anthropomorphisms for God to describe him in human terms because we can't understand what it's like for God to be God. But we can understand what this text is saying, that he remembers the covenant that he made, which means this, he is paying attention even when it seems like he's not. He's getting ready to act in a particular decisive way, meaning he never forgot, even though we didn't see him working the way we thought he should be working. He's getting ready to act. He sees, he hears, love this. He knew. He knew. He understood what his people were going through. He is a gracious covenant maker and covenant keeper. And because God is a gracious covenant maker with sinners and a covenant keeper, faithful, strong, caring, able, because of that, God is going to reveal himself to Moses. And in verse 20, we see this, God is going to display in verse 20 that he is God, that Pharaoh is not. God is going to free his people through an 80-year-old ex-convict, Moses, who had committed murder earlier, 
seeking to deliver God's people and wandered into the wilderness 40 years on the run. An 80-year-old ex-con is going to be used by God to lead his people to deliverance. That is what God is doing. And with this encounter with Moses, we get a better picture of who God is, what God is like. This is important because we can't really understand ourselves without understanding God, and we can't quite grasp who God is if we don't understand ourselves. Both of these things go together. So as we see who God is in this text, we're going to get a better sense of who we are as well. And this encounter, Moses is tending his flock. He's just doing his thing. Maybe, maybe Egypt isn't on his mind in, or anymore. He's been there for 40 years out in the wilderness, separated from his people. Maybe he's just kind of in his routine. It's comfortable. And just for some random day, he ends up going this way. And he encounters the burning bush, and the angel of the Lord is there, and, and God is there. We see both of these things. This may be the pre-incarnate Christ. We don't know, but the burning bush is there, and Moses is seeing a burning bush that's burning, but it's not consumed, and it's like, I've never seen this before, and God calls out to him. This is the calling of Moses. God appears to Moses to call him to himself and to use him as a deliverer, and the first thing that we see about God as we look at this is that God is holy. God is holy. This is a part of his central character. You want to think about this. Why do we see a burning bush? Why do we see fire and not a watery bush? Like why, why, why do we see fire here? Why do we see fire throughout Exodus to represent God's presence? Why do we see fire as related to God throughout Scripture? Why not water? Well, one, you see water, and you're not that impressed. Fire is impressive, isn't it? Fire has a quality to it that's captivating. There's a reason that you can look at a fire. I don't know if you do this. You ever get a bonfire? You just kind of you can just find yourself just looking, just watching the fire. It's like, what's it gonna do next? You know, it's just cracking. <laughs> look, at this. this fire is great. You know, you don't watch water. Wow, look at the water keeps going. You know, f there's something about fire that is, that captures our awe, that captures our attention. One of the reasons that God appears in this way is this is a sign that God is God over creation. We're going to see in the rest of Exodus that God is going to show that he will use creation because he is the creator to bring about his purposes. That's part of it. But I think one of the main reasons that we see fire here is because fire is captivating. It is awe-inspiring, but fire must be approached rightly. You don't play with fire. You approach fire rightly. Remember in high school, we took a camping trip with our, our seniors after we graduated, and some genius at some point, as we had this giant fire, was like, let's run and jump over the fire. So there's this giant fire with flames like five feet in the air, and so then people are just running and trying to jump over it. But to do that, you need to approach that fire properly, or you will be roast, right? You need to come prop, you need to get your footwork right, you better hope you were a, uh, you, you better have hoped you ran track or something. You need to approach that fire rightly. You cannot play with fire. You can play with water. You still need to be careful. You can play with water, but you don't play with fire. There's a reason that God is revealed in that way. There's a reason that Hebrews 12, 29 says God is an all-consuming fire. And it really comes down to, I think, these two things. There's many reasons, but I think it comes down to these two, that fire 
is awe-inspiring and captivating, and fire has to be approached rightly. And this is bringing us to God's holiness. Notice that as Moses encounters the burning bush, he also is told by God to take off his sandals because he's on holy ground. Well, the ground isn't holy because the ground is holy. The ground is holy because the presence of God is there. And he has to approach God rightly. So fire, awe-captivating, inspiring, jaw-dropping, and approach rightly. This is showing us the holiness of God. One, uh, one writer puts God's holiness like this. It says, God's capacity to arouse in us reverent awe and wonder. That God's holiness is capacity to uh, rouse in us reverent awe and wonder. And it's also his majesty that he is a great king that we do not treat just like any other person. And so Moses has to approach God rightly as he encounters the burning bush. That God is holy. Now, I want you to think about this for what this tells us about God. God is not only holy, but you have a holy God who then reaches out to unholy people. I mean, let's think about our boy Moses. He's a murderer. He is a murderer. He has murdered a man, right? He has killed someone, right? And God is approaching him. The holy God is coming to the murderer, coming to the ex-con, to approach him. What does this tell us about God? God is infinitely, blazingly holy, but he's also infinitely merciful, right? This is showing us the character of God. And what this does is when we see God's holiness, it actually elevates the beauty of his mercy. I mean, it'd be no thing. It's like, hey, guess what? There's a person who was also an ex-con that came to this ex-con. And you're like, well, great. Yeah, that makes sense, right? No, it's the holy God of the universe coming to a murderer and saying, I would like to use you in my plan and purposes. That shows off the mercy and grace of God. God is holy, and it gives us a sense of awe and wonder, but he's also gracious, which gives us a sense of deep comfort and appreciation for his presence. But not only is God holy, we also see that God is the great I am. God is the great I am. Look at, uh, look at what happens in this passage. God, in verses 7 through 9, there's an emphasis on what God will do. He says, I have seen the affliction. I have heard my people's pride. I will come down and lead them to a land of blessing and milk and honey. Their cry has come to me. I have seen their oppression. And then in verse 10, I will send you. Right? This is, a, this is a strange flip because he is just for these last two verses said, I have seen, I have done, I have heard, I have heard, I will do, I will do, I will send you. And Moses is like, wait a second. You just said you're going to deliver the people and you're going to send me. This is, this, is, this is the knockout punch where Moses is like, what? Come again? Like He's just, what? You're going to send me? You just said you're going to do all this stuff. You're the one that's heard. You're the, you've kept the covenant. What, what am I doing? What am I going to do? And so Moses says, well, who am I? And this is, this is, this is not a fake, this is a, this is a true humility. It's like, how am I going to go to the world power, Egypt, and let your people go? Right? This is like trying to overthrow a government with the super soaker. How is this going to happen? How am I going to get this done? I already tried to kill a man to get it done. It didn't work. Who am I, God? And what does God say? But I'll be with you. And I'm going to give you a sign. You're going to come back to this mountain later and worship me. It's going to be a sign. So God says, I'm going to be with you. The Holy God wants to be with us. And then Moses is like, well, if I go to the people, right, what, 
What do I say? And I say, the God of your fathers is showing up. What do I say to them? How do I, how do I, what do I communicate to them? Moses is thinking, they remembered that I tried to lead a deliverance movement that ended up with me exiled. So I have no reputation with these people. What am I going to say? And maybe they don't even remember who you are, God. It's been decades. Maybe they forgot what they learned back in the land. They don't know. And so he says, well, what do I say? What do I say about who you are? He says, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And in verse 14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he says to him, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent you. Now, there's a play on words happening here. Moses says, who am I? And, and, and God's going to say, well, tell them that you're the one that I am is with. It's this, it's this play on words that's happening. It says, you're the one with the I am. That's who you are. Who am I? I'm the one with the I am. Well, the people are like, what? Right? <laughs> but it's supposed to strike awe and wonder and worship that you are the one that is with the great I am. Now, when Moses is asking, what do I say about your name? He's asking more than what can the people call you. He's really asking about the character of God because the people who have been enslaved for decades upon decades, they're going to say, well, oh, the God of your fathers appeared to you, Moses, the God of our fathers. Well, we kind of forgot about him. Well, is this God strong enough to deliver us? Because Pharaoh's strong. He just enslaved a couple hundred thousand people. Pharaoh is strong. So is this God strong enough to do? They're asking about the nature and character of God. And that's what a name is in Scripture. See, names in Scripture are about your character, your nature, your destiny, which is, which is why you have someone like Esau named Esau, because you look at that story in Genesis, he was hairy. And so you know what they named him? Harry, Esau, Harry, right? You have his brother Jacob, who grabbed the heel of Esau when he was born so he could kind of come out first. Well, you know, you know what they named him? Heel grabber, Jacob, right? Grab, right? That, so, so names are about your character. Names are about your, your destiny, right? We, we don't do that now. We just name people whatever was, was trendy, like apple or blanket or something like that, right? Or hickory or something. We just name, we just kind of just find something that's kind of weird or door, and we just name them that way, right? But at this time, you named in line with the nature and character. And so when God is revealing his name, he's revealing his character. He's revealing his nature. He's disclosing. He says, I am the I am. And this is so reverenced that Hebrews will not actually write this out. Hebrew people will not write this name out in full. They will use abbreviations because this name is so holy. You'll see this in your Bibles if you see LORD in all caps, it is the, the I am. It is Yahweh. Otherwise, when you see Lord, it's Adonai. It, it, it's another name for God that's beautiful, but it's not this uh, precious divine name, the great I am. I am who I am. And what God is doing is he's, he's showing his character. This is a hard verse to translate. I am who I am. It can mean I am what I am. I am who I am. I will be what I will be. I am because I am. I will be because I will be. The essence is this, is that God is uniquely self-existent, uniquely God who has no cause, no need for other. He is who he is. That's the essence. He is who he is. And you think about the, think about the context of this. It gives us some understanding. Moses wants God to deliver the people and to just feel the benefits but not be part of the plan. God is not doing what Moses wants God to do. And why is that? Because God is the I am. I am who I am, not I am who you want me to be. God is God. 
That's really what this means. God is God, self-existent, self-glorifying, independent, uncreated, unsustained by anything other than himself. I am who I am. And this is important for us to get the, the nature and essence of who God is, is that God is not a God that we would make up. It's part of what this name reveals. He is not a God that you think of. He's not a God that you make up. He is who he is. And this relates to how we have to approach him and how we have to think of who God and how we can enjoy him. We understand he is who he, he is. He is not who we think he is or who we think he should be. We have to deal with him on his own terms. Now, this can be hard for us to wrap our head around because we often think about God like this. Well, we, we think in these terms, well, my God would never do blank or my God would do blank, right? We, we think in these terms, but we, we have to understand that there is a way to understand and approach God, and it has to deal with God defining himself, that he is who he is. He is the great I am. Right? And when we think about God's holiness, this is where this comes up, right? A God who is infinitely holy, who reveals himself in a burning bush, who is blazingly holy, that we have to approach rightly. Well, you, a response you might hear from this, maybe you think in your head, or maybe you've heard from your friends, is, well, well, my God would never do that. My God would welcome anyone, right? My God would welcome anyone. My God is a God of love. He will welcome all. But, but think about this. You don't welcome anyone. Right? You, have a, you, you will welcome anyone, but you, they have to approach you rightly, don't they? You will not welcome someone in your house through the back door in the middle of the night, will you? Right? They, they need to approach rightly, and you will welcome them. It's the same thing with the Holy God. We have to approach him rightly. He will welcome. He is gracious, but he has to be approached rightly. He is who he is. Now, when we think about God as the great I am, as holy, as set apart, as also gracious, there's really a couple responses that we can have to who God is. We can have awe and wonder as we see the blazing beauty and holiness of God. We can, it can leave us in awe, or we can kind of downplay it. it. It makes us a little bit uncomfortable. We can, we can downplay it and say, yes, God, God is holy, but you know what God really is? He's gracious, right? And we kind of put those two things at odds even though they work together, or, or we can really be put off by God's holiness, it can be really hard for us to grasp when we feel that it, it, it's, it just rubs us the wrong way. And the problem that we have to be careful with is if we don't embrace God in both his fullness of grace and his fullness of holiness, we will turn the great I am into the little should be. We, we will turn it from, this is who God is, revealed in, well, this is, this is what my God would do. But we need to try to take God as he has revealed himself as the great I am and not say this, this is what God would be like, this is what God should do, based on only what we think. But we have to let the great I am help us understand who the great I am really is. And now the thing with this is each one of us wants to think of God or put onto God what we think God should be. This is not just something that people outside of the church do. This is something that Christians do. This is something that everybody does. We want to take the great I am and turn him into the little should be. So we want to take what we think at gut level about God. We want to put that on God. And then we'll, you know, we may put some scripture in it with, within it as well and kind of make this smoothie of this is what God ought to be, a little bit of this and a little bit of this. We would never say it like that, but it's natural for us to do that. It's natural for Moses to think, well, God, you should be the one delivering the people. Not me. Don't use me. Why me? I killed someone. 
You do it. This is going to be hard. Right? Moses doesn't know he's got another 40 years in the wilderness with people that complain every day. He's going to want to kill all them, right? So he's like, God, why are you doing, right? But this is who God is, right? So, so, but this is part of us where we want to say, God, you should be like this. We have that at gut level, don't we? So we, we need to understand this is everybody. This is not just people outside. There. Everybody does this. And we have to be careful because if we let our gut level understanding or our gut level preferences of, well, God should be like this, we will turn the one true deity into a meity. We will make God in our own image. And we will create a God and project all of our inclinations, all of our uh, presuppositions. We will project them onto who God is. And the problem is, if we do that, we will never have a powerful encounter with God. We will never encounter a burning bush because of what we're really dealing with is just ourselves. So here's the test for us. Are we projecting onto God our gut level inclinations and preferences, or are we dealing with the one true real God? Here's the test. Is God ever a burning bush to you? Is God ever something that makes no sense according to human wisdom and understanding? If God makes sense on every single level and is like a Rubik's Cube, that if you're clever enough, you can get everything sorted out, then you are very clearly operating <laughs> with something that you have, that you have projected Maybe, maybe there's some scripture in there, there's some other stuff in there, but if you can solve everything and know everything about God and there's never challenge, there's, there's, it never uh, uh, contradicts you, it never seems like God is almost too big to get, right? then you are very clearly dealing with something that you have projected onto this idea of God. Right? So, so the other question, the other test is, does God ever challenge your long-held gut-level beliefs and ideas? Does God ever challenge you or just everybody else? Right? These are the things we would expect if we're really dealing with an infinite being. That, that we, become, we get called out quite often, not just other people. That there are actually supposed to be some things about God that make you say, wow, I would never believe that otherwise. I would never think that otherwise. Okay, that's really hard for me. Right? That, that's how you know you're actually dealing with, 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 a, with the true God. If everything is easy and everything makes sense to you and you're a finite human being, how could that be an infinite God? How could that be the great I am? That's just the, the little you are. Right? So there should be challenge for us. So this should encourage you if you read the Bible and you say, oh man, that's hard. Good. Everybody does that. Right? If you read the Bible and say, oh, no, everything's great, da, 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 da. wait a second. Are you really understanding what you're dealing with? Right? Does God's way, this is how we know we're dealing with the, with, the, with the real one true God. Does God's way ever leave you scratching your head like 40 years of waiting in the middle of suffering? Think about Moses. 40 years of waiting in the middle of his people's suffering. This is a head scratcher, Right? Does God's ways ever leave you scratching your head? Or are you able to sort and solve them all? Right? This helps us know if we're really dealing with the great I am. 
And as we see God in this way, it helps us really understand ourselves. C.S. Lewis has this great quote, um, a great scholar and thinker who had a radical conversion to Christianity, uh, even though he was intellectual and thought it would never happen. He says this in in terms of how God, uh, seeing who God is, helps us understand who we are. He says this, in God, you come up against something which is in every respect immeasurably superior to yourself. Unless you know God as that, and therefore know yourself as nothing in comparison, you do not know God at all. As long as you are proud, you cannot know God. A proud person is always looking down on things and people, and of course, as long as you are looking down, you can never see something that is above you. And so the question for us becomes this, are we going to be humble enough to move from our meities to really embrace and see the one true deity, the great I am? We really see and take God for who he is. And I want you to think about, think about it in this way, just even think pragmatically. Who really wants to deal with a God that is smaller than them? Because if you can explain everything about God, if you can explain and rationalize, well, yeah, the, the reason that bush is burning uh, and it's not consumed is because X, Y, Z. Like, if you can explain everything about God and it makes total sense to you and there's no, no transcendence, no wonder, no awe, no faith, no worship, then, then what is it? It's not the great I am. It's not I am who I am. It's the little should be. It's the little you are. It's, it's not him. And so the wonder and the awe and the challenge shouldn't dissuade us, but should actually lead us to worship. And then God also begins to show his plan and his purpose. He's saying, I'm going to lead you into a land of blessing. I'm going to lead you a place flowing with milk and honey. He's he's just showing he's going to bless his people. He's going to lay out his purposes, which is going to unfold into blessing for the world. But I think the question that that is there for us is if this is who God is, the great I am who, who, who loves and who is merciful to lowly who, who am I's, lowly people, even like Moses, ex-cons, murderers, right? If this is who God is, how do we encounter this God today, right? Because you're like, I, I've seen bushes, but I haven't seen many that are burning without being consumed, right? How do we have the burning bush encounter with the God who is blazingly holy and infinitely gracious? How do we encounter this God today? How do we encounter the great I am now? encounter him through his word, and his word leads us to Jesus. This is why Jesus in in John 8, 56 through 59, he has this encounter with the religious teachers of the day, and they're talking about Abraham, talking about God making his covenant with Abraham, which we've seen in this text, and and Jesus says, uh, they rejoiced, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And the religious teachers say, hold on, they say this, you're not even 50 years old, and you have seen Abraham? They're like, the math just doesn't work. And Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Now, now what is Jesus doing? What is Jesus doing here? What is he saying about himself? What is he calling back to Jesus who loved the Hebrew Bible, who loved Exodus, who loved Deuteronomy, who loved all the books that we look and we say, what is this, right? These are the things that he loved and treasured and knew in his heart to the point that he can be 12 years old in the temple teaching scholars, right? He loved these these texts about God's character and his plan and his purposes. And Jesus says to these religious leaders, he says this, before Abraham was, I am. And what do you think he's saying? What is he doing? And why do the religious leaders, after he says this, why do they pick up stones 
to throw at him and kill him. What is he doing? We sing, the great I am is revealed in me. This crazy, complex, beautiful, glorious, burning bush that is revealed as burning and yet is not consumed. Jesus says, I am the I am. I am the self-existing God. I am the exact image of God, the radiance of his glory. I am him. And so we encounter the great I am that Moses encounters at the burning bush. He is the same today, yesterday, and tomorrow. He is revealed in and through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And think about what the burning bush has shown us, that God is blazingly holy, and yet he's incredibly gracious because he's going to reveal himself to an ex-con murderer. Where do we see the blazing holiness of God and the incredible mercy of God come together in one place at their core pinnacle? We see it in Jesus. Do we not see it upon the cross of Jesus Christ where God in his blazing holiness says, I will not overlook sin. I will not sweep it under a rug, but I will not uh, restrain my love for you. I will put the weight of your sin on myself and my son. We see it in Christ. Jesus is the great I am. Jesus is how we encounter the living God. It's how we are freed from our meities to encounter the one true deity. How we're freed from creating little, well, I think you are, to actually seeing the great I am. We see it through Jesus. And so the good news for us is we don't have to go search for the burning bush. The burning bush has come to us. Jesus has been sent. Jesus has been revealed. Jesus has been unveiled. He is right there in front of us if we look at him with the eyes of faith. And so to know God, to see who he is experientially, we see Christ. We study scripture, but we see Christ in the scripture that we study. That is the character of God put on full display, the person and work of Jesus Christ. And Moses leaves this encounter with God changed. Not a man freed from struggles, but a man with a new purpose, with a new hope, with a new direction in his life. And the same is for us if we see Jesus with the eyes of faith. And I love this. You think about just think about this. You have Moses ask, who am I? Well, he's just a who am I? He's just a nobody. But the great I am comes to him. With purpose, with mercy, with blessing. It's the same for you and I. Who, who are we compared to a holy, infinite God? We're just creatures. But the great I am comes to us in Christ, pursues us in Christ, comes for us in Christ, has grace for us in Christ. So will we lay down some of our thoughts of, well, this is who you ought to be, God, and will we see that who he is is actually better and more gracious and beautiful than we thought? It's revealed in Jesus. Let's take a moment to pray in response to God's word. I want to encourage you to engage in um, just a moment of silent prayer and confession, just in light of God's word, in light of the question of even who is God and who are we? He is holy and we are not, to just go before God and to Bring confession to ask him to reveal himself to you, to ask him to show you who he is in Christ more deeply and fully. And after that, I'll lead us aloud in a time of prayer and we'll respond in in worship and song. Let's take a moment to pray silently before God. God, we thank you for revealing yourself in Christ. We thank you for uh, your mercy to us in Christ. That God, though we uh, project onto you our, our own thoughts, our own preferences and inclinations, God, you, you are gracious um, 
to continue to pursue us, to continue to reveal more of who you are in light of your word, and in light of uh, Christ. And we thank you, God, that you're not only pure and holy, but you are merciful and gracious. We thank you how you have shown that beautifully for our good in and through uh, life, the death, and the resurrection of your son. Would you please help us to trust more and more in the work that he has done for us? Would you help us to have a deeper sense of why your holiness is good, is beautiful? Help us to be shaped by it. Would you help us to, as we see the depths of your holiness, to then have a greater appreciation and joy over your mercy and grace? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.